ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Hawley, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, the government refuses to intervene in an industrial battle on Australia's wharves. Also, it's been a bad summer for drownings and lifeguards are pleading for more caution. And hot, sticky and not too happy. Humid weather is taking its toll. Yeah, it's draining. It makes you feel slow. I get into work and then I sweat for about half an hour. It's worse at the moment. I would say probably it would be like a magnifying glass that's making a big, ginormous fire with lava. But first tonight, as tens of thousands of shipping containers around the nation stand idle, port operator DP World and the Maritime Union have been given a blunt message. The Minister for Workplace Relations, Tony Burke, met with both sides today and told them he won't intervene in the dispute and they must work harder to end it. Samantha Donovan reports. The industrial dispute between the Maritime Union of Australia and the Dubai-owned port operator DP World started in October. The union wants more than 1,500 workers to get a 16% pay rise over two years. DP World claims the dispute is costing the Australian economy tens of millions of dollars a day. The Workplace Relations Minister Tony Burke met with both DP World and the union today. He strongly denied media reports that he'd refused to meet with the port operator and said he instigated the meetings. And at those meetings, I have made it very clear that I expect the parties to be at the table, to be negotiating and to be resolving this. Mr Burke said he conveyed this message to DP World. If they had invested as much into negotiating as they have into their media campaign, they may already have an agreement. It is in the interests of everybody, including the company, that they negotiate and they use the Fair Work Commission to help them with that conciliation. The concept that where every other business in Australia is expected to negotiate with their workforce, but this business wants to rely on ministerial intervention, is not a view that impresses me. And I expect them to do the same as every other business in Australia. And he rejected the suggestion the impact the dispute is having on consumers and the traffic of goods means he should intervene. I have no intention of intervening. I think Australians are sick to death of having highly profitable companies say everything is the fault of them having to pay their workforce the same as their competitors. The Australian Retailers Association says the dispute has led to a two to eight week backlog in shipments and 48,000 shipping containers are standing idle nationwide. Perishable food, pharmaceuticals and back to school merchandise are being affected in particular, it says. Vin Tai is a professor of supply chain logistics management at RMIT University. He agrees the lengthy dispute is affecting the supply of imported products. So for the Australian consumers, we know that a majority of our um, consumer household, like our electronics and the food and things like that, uh, and, and, and footwear and clothing, majority of them, they're imported from overseas in containers. So when the containers are uh, held up at the port, 
What does mean is um, the time we are waiting to get them will be much longer. And Professor Tai says Australian exporters are being hit too. They'll be losing out the export uh, competitiveness in terms of time, and come with that will be the, the cost competitiveness as well. Um, at the macro level, from the from the uh, you know government perspective, right? We always want to help more export than 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 than, than import. And anything happen at the port, um, you know, negatively will uh, put a, a very negative impact on, on that nation's balance of payment. The Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry wants the dispute sorted out urgently, but its CEO, Andrew McKellar, wouldn't comment directly on the refusal of the Workplace Relations Minister, Tony Burke, to intervene. Well, this is a very serious uh, dispute and we are now seeing that the economic impact, uh, the impact that this is having on the Australian economy is starting to ratchet up. Um, By the calculations we've seen, it's estimated the costs uh, so far are about $1.3 billion to the Australian economy. So we're paying a lot for many products at the moment and there are still worries about inflation. Does the Chamber of Commerce and Industry think uh, these supply problems could increase the prices of some goods and in turn push up inflation? Well, ultimately, the risk is it's adding to cost for business. Uh, of course, you know, business does not want to pass that through to uh, consumers. But if it's if it's having that impact, that is a risk. Um, and obviously, we don't want to get to that point. In a written statement, the ACTU Secretary, Sally McManus, said this dispute will be solved at the negotiating table. Dubai Ports needs to spend less time in the media spotlight and more time negotiating in good faith. In its written statement, DP World said it's committed to the Fair Work Commission process to find a fair and sustainable resolution that addresses the consequences of the industrial action and seeks to end it. Samantha Donovan reporting. Surf Lifesavers are sending a message to people to take particular care when swimming at beaches this summer. It comes as the national drowning death toll rose this morning to 59, five more than the five-year average for this time of year. It's believed rough surf conditions and people swimming at unpatrolled beaches may be to blame for the rise. Flint Duxfield reports. At Shelley Beach in Sydney's north, hundreds of people are out enjoying the sun and the surf. The water is calm with barely a wave lapping the shore. But it comes as little surprise to locals that yesterday a woman in her 30s drowned not far from the shore. Well, they're wild places. Uh, it can be very dangerous because all the rips and currents. And I think people are a bit naive. Uh, ocean is always dangerous. doesn't matter where. The death at Shelley Beach is one of at least 59 recorded since December 1st around the country, with a man in his 20s drowning this morning at Byron Bay's Tallow Beach on the New South Wales north coast. That's more than 25% higher than this time last year and five more deaths than the five-year average. There's been a flurry of drownings uh, most recently and and we've had two in the last 24 hours. Steve Pearce is the CEO of Surf Life Saving New South Wales. He believes rough surf conditions created by an El Nino weather pattern are partly to blame for the higher than average number of drownings around the country. Yeah, we've seen such wet and wild conditions, you know, in in many states across the country and we've still seen a a mass of people, you know, coming down and recreating along the the New South Wales coastline and other coastlines around around the country. The other thing that we are seeing is a trend of people wanting to go in and try and save or assist other people that they see.
see um, in trouble in the water. However, last year um, in New South Wales, we saw eight people lose their lives in unpatrolled locations trying to rescue other people. This year already, I think on two occasions now, we've seen the same thing. Around Australia, there's more than 180,000 volunteer lifesavers who help keep the beaches safe, in addition to paid lifeguards. But many of the deaths so far this year have occurred on unpatrolled beaches. And while Steve Pearce encourages everyone to swim between the flags, he's realistic that that's not always going to be possible. We've been rolling out emergency response beacons at what we call black spot locations, and these are unpatrolled locations that are renowned for either drownings or, or, or mass rescues, and they've proven to be real lifesavers uh, this year. And uh, we've procured more response vehicles and, and more on-water jet skis, so we're actually doing a lot more active patrolling into these unpatrolled locations. So everyone up at the volleyball court, you guys need to make your way up to the red and yellow flag and make sure that is where you're only swimming. A few hundred metres from Shelley Beach lies one of Sydney's most famous tourist attractions, Manly Beach, where hundreds of people are mostly swimming between the flags. The news that someone died yesterday in relatively calm water does come as a surprise to some. When I read it, uh, I was flabbergasted that it was actually this area. I thought it would be somewhere further up the coast. What's your perception? Like, What do you think of Australian beaches? Very safe. Everything's are so peaceful. Would it surprise you to know that someone had died at this beach here? Died? I didn't know that. Look, look at the beach. It's quite nice. So um, I don't worry about anything. While several people PM spoke to said it's only visitors that get into trouble in the ocean, Steve Pearce from Surf Life Saving New South Wales says that idea is a myth. It's probably a 50-50 arrangement where... It's either surprisingly locals, you know, um, they're getting into trouble, but um, it's also the visitors, you know, interstate visitors that come to locations. They don't understand the intricacies of that particular location. Steve Pearce's advice is wherever possible to swim between the red and yellow flags where lifesavers are on duty. But he says if you are going to swim at an unpatrolled beach, make sure you at least have phone reception. If you do see someone in trouble or there is an issue, you know, you have to be able to ring triple zero because that's what we're reliant on to get our lifeguards and lifesavers from those nearby locations to get there. And he urges anyone thinking of trying to help someone in distress to make sure they have appropriate training and a buoyancy aid. That could be you know, a boogie board, it could be a pool noodle, anything that can keep you afloat because what we've seen is people entering the water with nothing and they in turn you know, will drown with, with the victim. But the best approach, Steve Pearce says, if someone's in danger in the surf, is to alert a lifeguard, or if the beach is unpatrolled, call triple zero. Flint Duxfield reporting. Serious doubts are being raised about the government's ability to meet a key policy goal to ease the ongoing housing crisis. Last year, National Cabinet announced a new target to build 1.2 million well-located homes over five years. But new construction data shows just over 170,000 dwellings were completed in the year to September 2023, well below the Albanese government's 240,000 a year target. And analysts warn it's only going to get harder. Here's reporter David Taylor. Nathan Island is an electrician in Sydney's Sutherland Shire, working on existing residential properties and new builds. Speaking to PM from a tight spot on a construction site, he says it's becoming increasingly difficult 
to build new homes. I know a lot of people cancelling and postponing stuff and putting things off. Things are definitely slowing down. He says elevated inflation is sending builders to the wall, while higher borrowing costs have homeowners cancelling projects. You're just finding people can't go ahead with some of the big works that they had planned because things are tight. Official data shows 174,000 dwellings were completed in Australia in the year to September. Looking ahead, the number of dwelling commencements has collapsed to just 165,600. It's all well short of the government's 240,000 new builds yearly target, kicking off from July 1 this year. Master Builders Australia represents the residential, commercial and civil sectors of the building and construction industry. CEO Danita Warne says she doesn't think the government's target will be achieved. We accept that if we take status quo, then we're not going to achieve it. And that is why it's so incredibly important that the government has a small window of six months before the clock starts ticking. First and foremost, she says, the industry needs half a million new workers over the next few years. But there's a whole stack more that needs to be resolved too. The state and territory governments agreed at National Cabinet with the Prime Minister last year to resolve significant impediments around supply, which delays or increases the cost of building and construction. Nothing that we have seen has uh, commenced in that work to any great degree. ANU Associate Professor Ben Phillips researches tax, welfare and housing in Australia. He thinks the government should have set a more realistic new homes target. Look, absolutely true, yes. I mean, for a start, I don't think they were going to get to 1.2 million even in in better times. Um, So I don't think they would have gotten there, but um, certainly things have gotten harder. What does the reality of not meeting that 1.2 million new homes target mean for Australia and for the housing crisis? Obviously, we have very strong population growth at the moment, but I don't think that's likely to continue at the current rate. So I don't think that, at least from a population perspective, we needed to build 1.2 million dollars, 1.2 million dwellings. Closer to eight or 900,000 might be a more realistic point to where we actually get to. Will we still have a housing crisis if, if your, that estimate is, is achieved? Ideally, you'd have more houses being built, but I don't think it's a, an enormous um, impact in terms of in terms of house prices. I, I think it has some impact on rents, but I think there are other forces at play that probably uh, will mean that we'll still have high house prices and we'll still have high rents, uh, regardless of, of what amount is built over the coming couple of years or so. The government's also created a $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund, which will help fund 30,000 new social and affordable rental homes in its first five years. Electrician Nathan Ireland thinks tax reform might be part of the answer too. What they should be doing is if they limit maybe gearing to new builds, then you think all the investors will go that way instead, which would bring on more supply. But I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if that's, if that's ever going to happen, but it would make sense in my head. Electrician Nathan Ireland ending David Taylor's report. This is PM with me, Samantha Hawley. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. A landmark case before the federal court is set to determine whether Roundup, one of the most popular weed killers in the world, causes cancer. The class action, representing more than a 1,000 people, has begun hearing closing arguments, with a decision expected in the first half of the year. The consequences could be significant. 
Farming groups in Australia say if it's restricted, it could threaten Australia's food security, as Bridget Fitzgerald reports. If you ask most Australian farmers, the product Roundup is a vital tool. If the usage had to be limited in some degrees, uh, we would obviously see a a huge drop-off in farmer productivity and and farming generally. Andrew Wiedemans, the Southern Director of Grain Producers Australia and a farmer at Rapunyup in Victoria's Wheatbelt, 300 kilometres northwest of Melbourne. The key ingredient in Roundup, glyphosate, is a herbicide that's used to control weeds. It's widely used by farmers, local councils and other groups on public land and also by home gardeners. But there are also also allegations it causes cancer. The Federal Court in Melbourne is currently hearing closing submissions in a landmark lawsuit involving more than a thousand people who claim glyphosate is carcinogenic for humans and can cause non-Hodgkin lymphoma. If the court were to find in favour of the plaintiffs, there could be significant consequences, particularly for agriculture. Andrew Wiedemann again. I don't want to scare people too much, but I mean, if, if we were to lose this product, I would see a halving at least of production overnight. There is no way that the biodiverse systems that people are advocating for will ever produce food to the level that we are at the moment because we need to conserve moisture. Australia has a climate uh, and it has a climate-based soil base that determines the need for us to store as much moisture as possible to grow the crops that we do. We need to conserve moisture by Uh, managing weeds as we do at the moment and glyphosate's the key component of of that operation. The class action led by Morris Blackburn lawyers against Roundup's manufacturer Monsanto and its Australian division Huntsman Chemical Company is seeking to prove the product is carcinogenic and the companies were negligent in its sale. The lead plaintiff Kelvin McNichol worked for his family's vegetation management business in Queensland for 20 years. He was first diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma in May 2018. After going into remission, he was diagnosed again in 2023. The Australian lawsuit comes after thousands of similar cases in the United States, which have forced Monsanto's parent company, Bayer, to pay billions of dollars in settlements and compensation after losing civil cases. Bayer, however, insists the product is safe and cites hundreds of studies that confirm that. Um, That's basically correct. Dr Ian Musgrave is a senior lecturer in pharmacology at the University of Adelaide. In human epidemiology, where you look at people that have been using glyphosate, while there were some early studies where there was some possible increase in cancer. Those studies were very small and the increase was never statistically significant. Dr Musgrave says one of the most important studies has been a large cohort study of more than 50,000 people in the United States, the Agricultural Health Study, which concluded there was no apparent association between glyphosate and cancer. Having said that, in any study where we're looking at humans, agricultural workers use a wide variety of chemicals. So determining what is causing cancer can be very tricky, but at least the consensus is based on the very large, well-done and very carefully studied agricultural health study is that glyphosate is not associated with increases in a large number of cancers, including lymphoma. But for those who don't use glyphosate, the question isn't whether there's proof glyphosate causes cancer. The question is, why are we still so reliant on chemicals for things like weed control? This is where we we need some bit of transparency and an open and honest discussion 
around what are we doing, what are we creating here for our future generations. Dave McFall is an organic farmer near Cojanup in Western Australia's Great Southern Region. He agrees the farming sector would be in serious trouble if glyphosate were to be heavily restricted or banned in Australia, but he says that's because of poor preparation, not because it's not possible to live without it. We can suppress weeds by getting a better understanding of ionic exchange. We can get a better understanding of nutritional bands that weeds operate in. And we can just, if we want to suppress insects, let's look at pheromones and other technologies that are that are nature-based, like a little bit of trickery and not, not a sneaky product that's clear evidence that it's impacting our ecosystem as much as the human gut. Glyphosate use has been restricted in some countries. In Australia, more than 500 products containing glyphosate are approved for use. Bridget Fitzgerald reporting. If you live in the tropics, you're used to the steamy weather this time of year and the tropo atmosphere that comes with it. But this summer, the states further south are having a taste of that sort of heat thanks to unusually humid conditions. So what toll is it taking on our physical and mental health? Eliza Getsey finds out. Has this summer's sticky weather been getting under your skin? Yeah, it's draining. It makes you feel slow. Very, very, very hot. I would say probably it would be like a magnifying glass that's making a big, ginormous fire with lava. (laughs) That's how hot it feels. Last year, Australia equaled its eighth warmest year on record. Worldwide, the EU-run climate change service Copernicus declared 2023 the hottest year on record for planet Earth. But not only is it hot, it's been unusually humid this summer, especially in places like New South Wales, Victoria and WA. Last week, Sydney recorded its muggiest day on record, according to WeatherZone, with a dew point of nearly 27 degrees. Um, You're wiping the sweat off your brow as we speak. I get into work and then I sweat for about half an hour. It's draining. But, yeah, that's Sydney. can be really humid. It's worse at the moment. Awful. <laughs> Last week in Campbelltown, it was so hot, we sweated all our sunscreen off. We got burnt like crazy. Oscar over there, he did a job last year in the Northern Territory. The mango madness season, I think. So, yeah, you go a bit insane. How does this compare? Not, not as bad, but it's still pretty bad. Milton Spear is a meteorologist at the University of Technology, Sydney. He says Australia is becoming more tropical. From November, atmospheric moisture has significantly increased right through the upper levels of the atmosphere. And that's as a result of easterly winds that are blowing across warmer than average sea surface temperatures in the Coral and Tasman Seas. So for a start, that's making us feel warmer. Also, increasingly in summer, cold, dry air that used to accompany frontal systems crossing southern Australia is much further south or poleward towards Antarctica. So there are long spells of higher humidity across southern parts of Australia in recent decades, which is quite apparent this summer. We've been getting almost tropical tropical air coming from northern Australia right over states like Victoria and, and even Western Australia, partly responsible for those thunderstorms and flash flooding that occurred in Perth a couple of nights ago. If you're feeling a bit more irritable in these conditions, it's not just you. The Mango Madness tropical trope has some truth to it. Dr Heather Stevens is a researcher from Macquarie University who studied the link between heat and human behaviour. The link's really clear, both from my studies but also studies that have been done around the world in real-world situations and also in laboratory situations. As temperatures increase, so does aggressive behaviour. They think, oh, yeah, I'm hot, I'm sticky, I'm thirsty, I'm fatigued. So we tend to think that it's physical, but actually it's very much behavioural as well. So in extreme heat, we might cancel outdoor sports, not do outdoor work, go home. 
and potentially that social stress of being at home has more opportunities and motivations potentially for incidences of domestic violence, an area of research we found to be most affected by by temperature. That aggression can even play out online. Our study looked at it, 74 million tweets over a number of years and potentially there is a higher likelihood of sending a rageful or angry tweet in extreme heat. Dr Simon Quilty has studied the link between heat and our physical health. So what is humidity doing to our bodies? When we get hot, our bodies deal with that heat by sweating it out and our vascular system, the, the blood vessels in our bodies actually redirect blood to the to the skin to try and allow evaporation. Now the problem is that if it's really humid then you don't evaporate from your skin and if you don't evaporate from your skin then you're not cooling down. And what about our brains? It can be really emotionally taxing, particularly at night. So hot and humid nights will make you sleep in a kind of a fitful way from personal experience and uh, that sleep deprivation from my personal experience leads to becoming a little bit more titchy and I certainly know that on really hot nights um, and hot days my little kids and I would bicker a lot more and we do know that very hot weather uh, combined with humidity does have adverse effects on mental health. Milton Spears says the humidity will hang around until April or May. That report from Eliza Getzey. It was a double royal announcement that came completely by surprise. Both our head of state, King Charles, and the Princess of Wales have announced they've had to suspend their public duties for health reasons. Meaning with a slimmed down monarchy since the departure of Prince Harry and Meghan, the royal family will be less visible for a while. Rachel Hayter reports. Buckingham Palace says King Charles will undergo a corrective procedure on his prostate next week and his engagements will be postponed for a short period. The palace says the king's condition is not cancerous. 70 or 80 per cent of men... King Charles's age will have a degree of enlargement. Uh, the symptoms vary from patient to patient. Peter Heathcote is a urologist and the director of the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia. He explains prostate enlargement and prostate cancer are two separate conditions that occur in the same gland. Prostate cancer can cause symptoms, no doubt about that, and I would ask every man in Australia uh, if they have urinary symptoms to go and see their GP for a checkup, and part of that checkup will be to make sure there's no early prostate cancer. While the King's condition is benign, about one in six men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer by the age of 85. Doctors are pleased the 75-year-old King is being open about his surgery to encourage other men to get checked. Traditionally, men have not been great sharers of their, their um, medical conditions. But I think what's happened in the last 20 years with better health awareness, less smoking, looking after blood pressure and so on, men are living longer. And so they're going to be more aware of uh, these symptoms as they get older. It's an ageing issue. While King Charles's recovery time is expected to be relatively short, his daughter-in-law, the Princess of Wales, is facing a longer road. The palace has also announced Kate will spend two weeks at a private hospital in London, recovering from a planned abdominal surgery. That has forced her to cancel all of her engagements until Easter. So she's going to be in hospital for up to two weeks and then needs to rest for three months. So that's quite a big 
operation that she has had. Editor-at-large of the Australian Women's Weekly, Juliet Reedon, explains what we know about Catherine's condition. The palace has asked has said that they won't be sharing the personal details of her treatment, although she might talk about it in the future. But um, they've said that it's not cancer-related. It is serious. Prince William is also, has also cancelled engagements so as he can uh, be by her side and also help with childcare at home and look after the children. So I think we can be sure that this is serious, but they have said that she is going well. Consultant gastrointestinal surgeon Christopher Wong says the 42-year-old princess seems well-positioned for a complication-free recovery. Based on her age based on her fitness, her recovery should be straightforward. And as long as she looks after herself and not rush back to her very, very busy schedule. Royal commentator Juliet Reedon notes, Buckingham Palace does not typically announce royal health issues. We wouldn't normally be told about things like this in advance. So I think there's a, a transparency there from the palace, which we haven't seen before. But I suspect because in both situations, engagements had to be cancelled, the palace took the initiative to uh, put out statements so as there was no misinformation out there. And also disappointing people who are at those engagements is always at the heart of this. And in the absence of Prince Harry, his wife Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, and Prince Andrew, there are now fewer family members to perform royal duties. It does show what the slim down monarchy, what can happen in the slim down monarchy, in that there aren't lots of people to fill in there. So, you know, they're, they're very senior positions that have been affected at the same time. The Wales children are obviously far too young to be doing royal engagements and their, their royal work won't start for a long time. So it does leave a, a bit of a hole at the top for a short space of time. Editor-at-large of the Australian Women's Weekly, Juliet Reedon, ending that report from Rachel Hayter. Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Hawley. You'll find all our interviews and reports on the PM webpage. And you can catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app. The AM team will be back with Kim Landers tomorrow morning and we'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Have a lovely evening. Good night.